Well, if you, uh, if you found your seats, then you can get your Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, and when you get there, uh, if you're able, stand and we'll read chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I want you to think this morning of the most complicated thing that you've ever, ever drawn, colored, or painted. Okay? So the most complicated thing that you've either drawn, colored, or painted. So if you were to begin with a blank canvas or a blank sketchbook, could you paint something that's lifelike or draw something that's lifelike? Or were you like me when I was a kid and I went to art class, I was, I was terrified that I would have to show what I produced in art class. I had just no skill whatsoever. I eventually was able to you know, draw like a farmhouse on a landscape with a fence in somewhat normal perspective. But most of the time, if I were to draw an animal or a person or anything else, it was comical. It looked so unlike anything that you would expect to see in real life. I can still, I can still picture that art class, those tables where I had to create things and it just, it just didn't look right. So I've always appreciated something like color by number or (laughs) connect the dots, because it actually looks like what it's supposed to look like when you get to the end. Now, some of my kids, I have have one daughter who loves Bob Ross, and so she paints happy little trees all the time. I have some other uh, children who have taken art classes with Grace Wolf, and they've learned perspective, and they've learned how to put a grid here, and so when they're finished, it looks like the thing that it's supposed to be. I never learned to do this. I needed more help than most when trying to create something artistic. So I needed that paint by number, that connect the dots. And so that's what we're going to be doing in our sermon this morning with the gospel. You see, there there are many ways that we can present the gospel to people, and yet Sometimes it's helpful if we have some kind of paint by number or connect the dots so that we can see what does this look like when we put it all together. So today's sermon is connecting the dots, and to do that we'll be using what what we call the Romans Road. This is the fourth and last sermon in our uh, personal evangelism series for this month. In the beginning, Daniel emphasized 
the, the need for prayer, that, that we need to pray as we uh, begin the evangelistic encounter. We need to pray for those encounters. And Mike Knoll helped us think about the importance of building relationships with people as we attempt to share the gospel with them. And then last week, Daniel again helped us see what if we, how do we answer people's objections or answer their questions? How do we tell our story about how we came to faith in Christ? And so today, trying to wrap it up, we're going we're gonna to do an experiment together as we go through the Romans road in answer to this question, how do we connect the dots of the gospel? Now, the emphasis on prayer, where we started, reminds us that, that sharing the gospel and the effectiveness of the gospel depend on the Holy Spirit being at work, the Holy Spirit being at work and the person we're speaking to. The Holy Spirit being at work creating the opportunity for this conversation. The Holy Spirit being at work in us as we try to share the truths of the gospel. And there's long-term work to be done in building relationships with others so that we gain that entrance into that conversation. Many of our gospel conversations will come with people that we know and we've been talking to for years. Of course, that's not always true. Sometimes God opens up just this clear opportunity with somebody we've never met to share the gospel with them. But our goal this morning is to answer the question, when that opportunity comes to us and somebody says, okay, I'm I'm listening, so what does it mean to be a Christian? What is it I need to do to become a Christian? The phrase that we'll zero in on in our passage this morning is, that I may make it clear. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. As we said, there there are a thousand ways we can go about sharing the gospel with people. But whatever way we choose, we need to make sure that the gospel is clear to the person that we are speaking to. Now, I know it's rare that we have four sermons in a row from the same passage. And so we've attempted to kind of emphasize different aspects of this passage in Colossians. But I hope that you have found these few verses in Colossians 4 to be a compelling invitation for all of us to share the gospel with others. So we'll, we'll start here in Colossians for our first point, and then we'll move on to the book of Romans. But our first point is, number one, the door is for the word. And then we want to be clear about the problem Be clear about the solution, be clear about the response, and be clear about the hope. Let's pray again. Eternal God, who has no beginning and no end, help us this morning to feel the reality and certainty of eternity. Your word says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Thank you, Father, even for the reminder to me yesterday at a funeral of a friend 
of the reality of eternity. That life is short even when lived to a full uh, life of years. So we pray, I pray this morning that you'd help us to be prepared for that day or until the Lord's return. And lead us to help others be prepared for that day as well. Father, use your word this morning to stir us up to love and good deeds. Love and good deeds that would guide others to a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So number one, the door is for the word. So if you look back at verse 3 here in Colossians 4, you see this, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So what exactly is Paul asking them to pray for? He's asking them to pray for an open door of opportunity. But this door of opportunity is not just so that he can have a conversation with somebody. It's not just so that he can tell his story to them. What he's actually asking them to pray for is an opportunity for what? The Word. An opportunity for the Word. Does he ask them to pray for his release from prison? No. Does he ask them to pray for justice? No. Paul doesn't even bring up his circumstances as a prayer request here. What he prays for and what he's asking them to pray for is that God would open up an opportunity for the Word. Now, Paul, as we saw last week, he tells his story throughout the book of Acts multiple times. And I loved Daniel's point that he, he tells it differently according to his audience. And that's really helpful when we think about telling our own personal testimony. But what Paul's praying for here is an opportunity for the Word. Now, some translations will say here, an opportunity for our message. But the word here is logos, most often translated word. I think the ESV kind of gets the sense of it here. Pray for an opportunity for the word. So he's not just praying for an opportunity to speak, but to speak God's message. To speak God's message to those who need to hear it. He, he goes on to say what this message is. It's the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. Now, Paul has used this phrase, the word, several times so far in Colossians, so I don't have these for the screen. So go ahead and turn back to chapter 1 in Colossians and look in verse 5. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So here we see the word of truth, comma, the gospel, and what is it doing? It's, it's bearing fruit and growing. It's had an effect. The word of God has had an effect on his hearers. Or in verse 25 of chapter 1, This word, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. 
to make the Word of God fully known. That's Paul's mission to them. Or chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, speaking to them, he says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, right here, class, in word or in deed, in logos, in the word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. So Paul has been emphasizing throughout his message to the Colossians to emphasize the word. And so that's what we want to emphasize today. As we think about sharing the gospel with others, I want to encourage you to not avoid using Scripture as you share the gospel. Use the Word, the mystery of Christ. Now, he's, he, he, he says here in chapter 4 this mystery, right? To declare the mystery of Christ. And he's already referenced that in chapter 1 as well in Colossians which is the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in chapter 1, 26 and 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the mystery. Or in chapter 2, verse 2, to have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. God's mystery, which is Christ. So so Paul's point here in chapter 4 is that as we pray for opportunities, we're praying for opportunities for the word. What word? The word about Christ, the word that was, that, was, that was hidden, it was a mystery in days gone by, it was a mystery in the Old Testament about how is God going to accomplish this salvation? It's through the Messiah, through His saving work of dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. This was a mystery, but now it has been revealed, and that's what we're proclaiming to others. So as, we'd, as we try to make a specific application of Paul's prayer, so I want us to receive this invitation to speak the Word of God in our evangelistic opportunities. Now, I'm all for sharing our testimony, and I, I, that's a great way to share how one becomes a Christian. This is what happened to me. I love, the, I love serving others and, and, and gaining an opportunity to speak to them about important things. I love the idea of answering people's questions. And yet there's an encouragement here for us that we would use the Word of God because the Word of God is powerful. Remember, the Word of God is true. The Word of God is active. The Word of God accomplishes that for which God sends it. Here are just some reminders of that to us uh, from, from a few passages. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, a familiar passage. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So friend, as we think about sharing the gospel with people, just lean in to the promise of this particular verse. The word of God is living and active. The word of God cuts people to the heart. It has the power 
to, to discern what's going on in someone's life in a way that our own story can't do. So let's not avoid the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Or Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. We don't have the promise of that for our words, but that's a promise for God's words. We should take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. First Thessalonians, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it actually is, the Word of God which is at work in you believers. Or Jesus, sanctify them by, in the truth, your Word is truth. Finally, in the parable of the sower in Mark 5, what does the sower sow? The sower sows the Word. So for the rest of our sermon, we're going to be looking at specific passages from the book of Romans to see what the Word of God says itself on what is our understanding of the gospel. So this is, in some ways, a very basic sermon. It's it's just a real basic understanding of what is the gospel. What does it mean to believe the gospel? What is promised in the gospel? Now, when when I was growing up in my church, we called this the Romans Road. And that's just because this particular list of passages all come from the book of Romans. There's no particular secret to that. It's just helpful. It's just helpful to think, all right, if I were to tell the gospel from this particular book of the Bible, how would I do it? And so you go through the book of Romans and you think, well, here's a truth and here's a truth and here's a truth. Now, obviously, we could go through the whole book of Romans with someone, but that would be, that would be a long conversation, right? A long conversation. And of course, there are many other scriptures you could do uh, with this method. But the point is we want to make the gospel clear. We want to make it clear. That's what Paul is asking for. He's asking for an opportunity for the word, and he's asking that God would help him make it clear. So what do we want to be clear about? We want to be clear about the problem, the solution, the response, and the hope. Just as a kind of an introduction to Romans, look at verse 116 here. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. So when we go into conversations with people about the gospel, we need to remember that the gospel itself has the power to bring about salvation. So number one, be clear about the problem. I guess this is officially point number two. Be clear about the problem. Now, there are no shortage of problems in the world, are there? Natural disasters, wars, violence, greed, slavery, human trafficking, corrupt politicians, injustice, poverty, 
broken families, failing schools, inflation. They're not all equal, but they're all problems. They're all problems. And it's actually not very difficult if you're trying to strike up a conversation with someone to talk about some of the problems in the world. People are quite willing and able to talk about the problems that they are experiencing. In fact, we're all usually too eager to talk about problems we're experiencing, aren't we? And that easily goes into complaining. But there are a couple of gospel challenges with this tendency. One, when we, when we enter into uh, discussions about the problems we're experiencing, our point of view, our perspective is always the things that are problems for us, the way things affect us, the way things people affect the people we care about. It's, it's exceedingly rare that any of us identifies ourselves as the problem. We are the victims. And in comparing ourselves to others, we're almost always, almost always the good guy. So it's helpful in the cause of evangelism that we recognize the brokenness of the world. And we actually don't have to convince people that there's brokenness in the world. I I came across this quote from G.K. Chesterton uh, as as I was doing another study recently. I just thought this was great. Uh, Chesterton says in Orthodoxy, certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. (laughs) Like, we don't have to convince people that the world is broken. The challenge for us is to convince people that we are part of that brokenness. That, That how we should understand the brokenness of the world should not be centered around how things affect us, but how things affect God's glory. You see, our our violation of God's glory is the real problem, and we are at the center of that problem. In fact, the very act of putting ourselves in the center of how we think about what's broken in the world is itself idolatry. Romans 1 talks all about that, how we pursue our own desires and we stop glorifying the Creator and instead focus on the creature. So how do we help someone from the book of Romans see that what's broken in the world is not just, is not just outside of us, but it's in us? Well, I would start with Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. None is righteous, no, not one. Such an absolute statement, isn't it? There is none who is righteous, no, not one. And all of a sudden, it puts us in our place. We we try to weasel our way out of, of this by comparing ourselves to others and say, well, I'm not as bad as this person, or I'm not as bad as this person. But Paul orients us here, none is righteous, no, not one. Now, none of us is as bad as we could be. Total depravity does not mean we're all as evil as we possibly could be, but that the fallenness of sin affects every part of our lives. It permeates every part of who we are. 
So before we can share the solution to our problem, we have to realize one of the problems, there is none righteous, no, not one. We have all failed God's perfect standard. So there's none righteous. Next, I would turn to Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, and it tells us what that means. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, it's not even just past tense there. It's not that we have fallen. We fall short of the glory of God. You see, it's our failure to measure up to God's perfect standard, which is an offense to His glory. Now, one way to to communicate this in an evangelistic encounter is just to use the Ten Commandments. Uh, Ray Comfort, uh, in his ministry, um, does a great job of this. I just love watching him talk to random people, uh, usually at the beach in California, and he, he goes through the Ten Commandments to show them, are they a good person or not? So Ray Comfort, just witnessing, if you want to find him on YouTube. And he, he uses this, this uh, to great effect in communicating with people, are you a good person? But what we hear from Paul here is, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So communicating and convincing people that they are sinners is only part of the problem. It's actually the consequences of our sin which are our real problem, isn't it? And for that, we turn to Romans 6. So we've done Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23, now Romans 6.23, just the first part. For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Now, we must realize that this reference to death is not just merely the body lying in the grave. Yesterday, I was at a funeral for a family friend in Georgia, and his body was laying there in the casket. But that's not the fullness of what we're talking about when we say death here. You see, when we sin against God, we sin against the glory of the perfect God who is Holy, holy, holy. And this sin separates us from God. And through that sin, we, we deserve and earn our wages, our death, our separation from God and eternal damnation and God's wrath and fury. Those are our wages. The wages of sin is death. Now, this is a message our, our culture does not, does not preach or believe. They want to believe that either death is just the end or if you try to be a good person, you're going to be fine. But no, the wages of sin is death and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If I can cheat and go out of the book of Romans, I might go to Genesis 2 to the very beginning. In verse 17, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So in the perfect creation where all were in fellowship with God, Adam and Eve were in fellowship with God, they disobeyed God's command and death entered into the world. Disobedience to God's law brings separation from God and death. 
This is the problem. This is the universal problem for every person who has ever lived. So let's look at the solution. So we need to be clear about the problem. The problem is our offense toward God. We have sinned against him and his wrath is on us. What is the solution? We should be clear about that. So just as it's easy to misdiagnose the problem, it's also easy to misunderstand or misrepresent the solution to it. The world is full of solutions to things that are not our fundamental problem. We have medical solutions, political solutions, educational solutions, legal solutions, climate solutions, racial equality solutions, psychological solutions, and it's commendable that as human beings we try to improve the life of people around us. But none of those solutions actually gets to the main issue. It doesn't actually answer the problem that we really have. So to find an evangelical, evangelistic solution, we have to find something that solves our problem, our problem of death and separation from God. We have offended and alienated ourselves from God. And our sins and rebellion against Him are an offense to Him. So how can this be remedied? So I said earlier, we can't have solutions that just don't address the real problem. We also need a solution that actually solves the problem. We don't just need to focus on the right problem. We need a solution that actually works for that problem. In our default orientation, again, if we just think about how we just normally live life, our default orientation is the problem is outside of me and the solution is inside of me. That's, That's the default human posture. The problem is outside of me. The solution is inside of me. But that's exactly opposite to the biblical gospel, which is the problem is inside of me. And the solution is outside of me. Self-improvement is not a solution. We cannot remove the stain or consequences of sin by doing better. We can't remove the stain. We can't remove the penalty by doing better. Yet this is one of the primary ways that as human beings we try to deal with the problem of our brokenness. We try to do better. We try to be a better person. We attempt to outweigh the bad with good. But we know, we know this is insufficient to deal with our guilt before God. We know it. We know that no matter how much good we do, we can't erase the guilt. It is insufficient to deal with our guilt before God. No amount of good deeds can undo that one sin. Unfortunately, we all have way more than one. But no amount of good deeds, no amount of doing better, even if from this moment on you never sinned again, that would be insufficient to remove the stain of guilt and to make you righteous before God. So what is the solution? Well, there is one. Christ died for sinners. 
One of the clearest statements of this is in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, which reads, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Now, if you were wanting to shorten this, you could just go to verse 8 there. God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. There's so much wrapped up in, in these verses. God doesn't save those who figure out how to solve their own problems. While we were still weak, while we were his enemies, Christ died for sinners. He came for the ungodly. Now, I know these, these verses roll off our tongues if we've been a Christian for any amount of time. But just pause and think how radical that is. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember, the wages of sin is death. We deserve death. But we don't have to experience death because Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God expresses His love for us by sending His own Son to die for us, to die in our place. And miraculously, this was not after we corrected our ways or after we turned ourselves around, but while we were still sinners. That is the good news of the gospel, is that Christ died for sinners. God's message is not, turn yourselves around and God will save you, but rather, God saves sinners. That's the message that we have. Christ died for sinners. Second, eternal life is a gift Romans 6.23, we've already read, but we cheated. We just read the first phrase, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We deserve death, but God offers a gift to us, the gift of eternal life. We deserve death. He offers life. Now, this is not the same kind of gift that you get after you've been working at your company for 25 years, which not many people do anymore, you know, and you get the, get the gold watch or whatever is the reward for working hard for the company for so long. That's not what kind of gift this is because that gift was somewhat earned. You, you did something to receive that gift. It's not... It's not Totally free, it was based on what you did to get there. But this gift, this gift of God of eternal life, it's a free gift. It's not based on anything we've done. It's a gift not for those who have been nice, but for those who have been naughty. And at the core of it, this is what makes Christianity so unintelligible to the world. That God doesn't, God doesn't, 
just reward good deeds. He gives grace to those who have completely blown it. We understand justice. We understand trying to be a better person. But Christianity demolishes all of those attempts to deserve eternal life. It's only available as a gift. It's not like, well, one of the ways you can be saved is just receive this free gift. The other way is to improve yourself. That's not how this works. It's only available as a gift. So how can God be just and forgive sinners? We won't spend much time here. Daniel already read from this passage in Romans chapter 3, which is probably the best summary of this truth in the Bible, that we're justified, declared righteous by faith as a gift, Romans 3, 23 through 26, that that Jesus was a propitiation, a satisfaction of God's wrath that God was going to pour out on sinners. Jesus absorbed all of that wrath for his children, and he's passed over our sins so that God can be just and the justifier. He, can, he, can, he can't just overlook sin. He must punish it, but he punished Jesus in our stead. This is what we represent when we do the Lord's Supper each month. Jesus' blood and his body, they were broken for us. He died for sinners. So, the problem is that we've sinned and we deserve punishment and hell and death. The solution is that Christ died for sinners to offer forgiveness of sins and eternal life as a free gift. So we need to be clear about the problem, be clear about the solution. We also need to be clear about the response. What are we supposed to do? We've already said that self-improvement is not the solution. How then can one receive this gift of eternal life? And just like we talked about the missteps of understanding the problem the wrong way or the solution the wrong way, it's really important not to mess up the response We need to be clear about the response. What are some ways that we go wrong when we talk about our response to the gospel? One way we go wrong is by making making our response just a religious exercise. Maybe something like, pray this prayer after me, or raise your hand and come forward at the end of the service, or make a decision for Christ, or be baptized. All of those things are fine things. I've done all of them. They were a part of God drawing me to him. And yet, it's not just this religious experience. It's not just, let me say this better. It's not just going through some religious practice without your heart. That's what I'm trying to get at. You see, it's not just saying certain words. It's not just doing certain actions. There's something more that needs to happen in our response. You can't just boil it down to activities. So that's not the response that we're looking for all by itself. The other response that we can't do is is not, we can't measure our response by measuring moral change. Remember we said Christ died for who? Sinners. Christ died for sinners. So we can't make a part of coming to Christ Turning around before you receive salvation. So one of the ways we get our response wrong is when we start adding a moral measurement of change 
before we acknowledge that new birth has taken place. So when one comes to Christ, his life is changed. The old is gone. The new has come. But these fruits are the works of salvation. They're not what must be demanded in order to receive salvation. This is an important distinction. We, of course, expect when somebody comes to Christ that their life will change. But we're not looking for that change for them to respond rightly to the gospel message. Responding rightly to the gospel message is simpler than that. It's in chapter 10 of the book of Romans in verse 9. Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Or again in verse 13, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We say, Pastor John, saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from death. Saved from eternal punishment in hell. So this is a really simple yet profound response. It's not self-improvement. It's not just religious ritual. It's confess and believe. Confess and believe. Believe and confess. Believe that God's offer of salvation is for you. Believe that his death on the cross was to pay for your sins. Believe that his resurrection from the dead is for you. Receive the gift of eternal life through Christ Jesus. This isn't just believing in God. Well, I believe in God. The demons believe and they tremble. This is believing that Jesus' life and death and resurrection were for you, that they were sufficient to pay for your sins. Believe this and you are justified. You are declared righteous before God. Believe and Christ's righteousness is yours. This is amazing grace that we can be made righteous by Believing. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We confess and believe. What, do, what does it mean to confess? What are you confessing? You're confessing Jesus is Lord. This isn't just Jesus was a nice guy, Jesus was a good teacher, Jesus was a great moral leader. No, Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is your king. He is your boss. He is your Lord. You're submitting yourself under the lordship of who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. Not me, not Caesar, not anyone else. Jesus is Lord. Now, just saying those words, Jesus is Lord, well, that's not enough. Remember, what, what are the two things? Believe and confess. Confess and believe. You may say, well, John, what about repentance? Well, when we believe in Jesus as Lord, there is, a, there is a turning from sin and turning to Christ. They're two sides of the same coin, and they, that repentance is part of turning to Christ. In Romans 2, 4, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? God's kindness leads you to turn away from sin and turn to 
Christ. But the key distinctive for our response is faith, not work. Paul makes it clear in chapter 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. To the one who does not work, but believes his faith is counted as righteousness. And you may say, John, that that just sounds too easy. Just believe and confess. The gospel is free. It is a free gift. We need to be clear about the response. Now, there's a time to talk about praying a prayer of repentance before God or praying a prayer of faith, of, of deciding to follow Christ, of being baptized. But Paul tells us here what is required, believe and confess. Finally, we need to be clear about the hope. There's one final area that we need to be clear. Problem, solution, response, and hope. You see, we often go off the rails if we focus on the wrong hope. We're not promising deliverance from suffering in this life. We're not promising an easy life. We're not promising that your marriage is going to be easier or that your kids are going to be obedient or that your job is going to be all that you want it to be. What we're promising is a right relationship with God and eternal life. Now, it's true that living according to God's promises, living according to God's word is going to make your life better, and you'll avoid many of the pitfalls that you would uh, otherwise be in living in rebellion against God. However, the hope of the gospel promise is one of being made right with God. Again, if we, if we start thinking that our biggest problem is all these things happening to me, my circumstances, then we look for a solution that makes those circumstances easier. But the gospel is not addressing that primarily. It's addressing the real problem, which is our alienation from God and how to be right with Him. Here are a couple of the passages I would turn to. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Having been justified by faith, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. God is no longer our enemy. We are no longer alienated from God. His wrath is no longer hanging over us. We have peace with God. Now, this is primarily not a feeling of peace, although I do think God grants us in His mercy you know, a sense of peace before him. But this is, this is belief in the reality of what is true, that when we come to Christ by faith, we are no longer at enmity with God. His wrath is no longer over us. What is true is we are at peace with God. Sometimes we have to help our emotions come along with us. God is no longer angry at you, Christian. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Our Father is no longer looking down in displeasure because we fail or we're weak, we are at peace with God. The second hope would be from Romans 8.1. Again, not primarily an emotion. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No condemnation today. No condemnation tomorrow. No condemnation in eternity. This is amazing news. 
that God would offer this to us who do not deserve it. It's, this is a valuable promise beyond all comprehension. It's important for us because as we grow in sanctification, as we grow in our understanding of who God is, we become more aware of our sinfulness. We become more aware of how far short we fall of God's glory, and this promise becomes more and more precious. It's more and more precious because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Sometimes we feel condemnation and it's overwhelming and we have to believe the promise that there is no condemnation. We have to become increasingly confident in the promises of the gospel as we grow in our faith. Now, it's not a promise that earthly consequences are going to disappear. It's a promise that whatever temporal consequences we face, they cannot separate us from God's glory and God's eternity. It's a promise that God will do all that is necessary to bring all those who are His into His kingdom and into the fullness of His glory. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What should we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? All things. Well, we pray for an opportunity, an opportunity for a door, a door for the Word. Not just the Word of our story, not just the Word of our arguments, but the Word of God. And friend, we, we do pray that the Spirit brings opportunities, we pray that the Spirit gives us clarity, but we can actually, we can actually learn and practice how to share the gospel clearly. It doesn't have to be this, like, there's all kinds of anxiety when we want to share the, share the gospel with people, but it doesn't have to be an anxiety of, I don't know what to say. You see, we can learn what to say. We can connect the dots here in Romans. We can use, we can use this, this paint by number from the book of Romans, if you will, to help structure our conversations with people about the gospel. So what are some ways we could put this into practice? Well, we handed these out. Now, you may want to pick some different verses. That's totally fine. These are just ones I picked out. This could go in your Bible. This could become, you could put all these verses in a note on your phone. You could memorize them. I encourage you to memorize them. Uh, you can mark your Bibles and then write in the next place to go. This is a great way to use your Bible. Underline these passages in your Bibles and put where the next verse is on the Romans road. That way you can quickly flip to it. Go to the next passage. Go to the next passage. <clears throat> Memorize them. Practice presenting them to other believers. It's be a good, good exercise for you. Sometime today or this week. Like, actually try to do this. You can use this, you can use your Bible, or you can use your memory, and try to go through the gospel presentation. And if you want extra fun homework, pick a different verse. Do the same thing with John 3.16. So use John 3.16 as the word and explain the problem, the solution, 
the response and the hope. It doesn't have just to be the Romans road. And finally, we need to pray for opportunities to, to seek and, and share this with non-Christians. So there's the Romans road. I hope that you will put it into practice. I hope that you will find joy in reviewing the gospel for yourself and thinking about what God's done for us and how God's gift of salvation is free to all who will receive it. Let's stand and pray. Father, your grace is amazing. Thank you for these clear statements throughout the book of Romans of what you've done to accomplish our salvation. The lengths to which you went to send your own son so that we don't have to remain your enemies. We don't have to remain under your judgment. Lord, remind us of the glories of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would make our gospel conversations not so mysterious, that there are truths in your word, truths that will change lives, truths that have the power of the Holy Spirit behind them to transform our hearts, to awaken dead hearts. Lord, I pray for the dozens or hundreds of conversations that this congregation will have in the coming weeks and months. Lord, would you help help us to have your word on our lips. Help us to have the reality of eternity in our hearts and minds as we encounter people. That everyone we meet is going to live forever. Would you give us compassion? Would you give us love? And Lord, would you help us to make it clear as we ought to speak? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.